Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Trying to whip up a column, you know, about rock climbing feels like the least important thing in the world, you know. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Andrew Bisharat. Andrew is a writer, journalist, and a climber. For much of his career, Andrew is focused on writing professionally about climbing, mountains, and adventure. He's often called on when the mainstream press wants to report on these subjects, and he's a leader in adventure and mountaineering journalism. What is or was lesser known about Andrew is that he's of Palestinian heritage. He was the subject of a film, Resistance Climbing, that documented his first visit to Palestine, which occurred before the atrocities that began in late 2023. I wanted to give some personal context to this conversation and the introduction. With everything that's happened in Palestine recently, I've felt powerless and hopeless, and that I haven't been able to do anything about it. I've been put under quite a lot of pressure to talk about it online and share things on social media, but a lot of the time that sat quite uncomfortably with me. When I mentioned to a friend that I wanted to do a podcast about Palestine, but I knew that with the Adventure podcast I should really stay in my lane, she suggested that I interview Andrew. He was quick to reply and accept, and this is that conversation. The focus of the episode is Palestine, and it's not a bright and breezy episode. It's raw, it's real, and it's personal, and I've deliberately not shied away from the reality of things. I hope you enjoy this episode in some way, but most of all, I hope it teaches you something. I hope it helps you get a personal insight into the conflict, the place, and the people who call it home. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetracked is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organization working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Andrew Bisharat. Okay, cool. Um, So, thanks very much for doing this. Let's start in the obvious logical place. Start at the start. Um, if you could please introduce yourself, tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. Sure. Uh, my name is Andrew Bisharat. I am a climber and a writer, and I've been writing and climbing um, professionally for about 20 years now. And um, I have a podcast I do called The Run Out Podcast. Um, I do I put my writing on a website called Evening Sends. And um, I'm very much kind of in the core climbing world. I kind of cover the the core climbing stuff. 
Um, but occasionally I dabble in like kind of more mainstream adventure journalism and I've written about, you know, very various adventure sports for outside magazine and national geographic and other, other outlets like that. And so that's who I am. Ace. And before we get into climbing and your access to that world or your origin story, as it were, can you tell me a little bit about your heritage? Sure. Um, yeah, my heritage is uh, became a, a point of conversation um, in in the outdoor world this last year because I was in a film called Resistance Climbing um, that was part of the Real Rock Tour in 2023, and uh, it, it, it's a film that explores my um, my heritage as a Palestinian, and I go to Palestine to. Uh, see my great grandfather's and my grandfather's house in um, West Jerusalem, and um, as part of that trip, I also kind of meet an emergent climbing community in the West Bank um, of Palestine, and um, so it was a pretty, it was a, it kind of defined my year actually in 2023. That film and um, that that community and kind of being part of those conversations. So I assume that's why you've invited me on on your show. Well, maybe. I mean, yeah, to break the fourth wall a little bit, to be totally honest, you know, when everything started happening there, I was kind of thinking that I wanted to talk about it in some way that felt relevant to this audience. And it was actually a friend who said, why don't you ask Andrew? And I thought, that's a very, very good idea. And he said, yes, so here we are. But um, I think before we go into the film and your views on it and everything around it, I think it would be good to actually understand you know, how you did get into climbing and what it has done for you over the years. Sure. I Let's see. I, I, my first um, rock climb was at the Gunks, the Shawan Gunks in New York, uh, where I grew up. Um, I was 16 years old and my high school girlfriend got me a climbing lesson for my birthday. And um, I went up and was guided by a guide and did, you know, some five fives in, in the gunks and had an amazing experience and basically got hooked on climbing from that. Um, so I, I kind of learned how to climb in the gunks and, um, I went to college in, in Boston and spent a lot of time in the Northeast, uh, in New Hampshire and, and, and so forth, learning to climb up there as well. So that was my, um, my background and introduction introduction to climbing it was kind of very trad adventure style climbing at first and um and then i moved to colorado and kind of fell in love with sport climbing and that's kind of been more my my focus and and real passion um for the last handful of years and where did the writing and journalism come into all of this i um i didn't know i always wanted i i wanted to be a writer it kind of became something I just couldn't ignore after a while. I, I went to school and, and started um, trying to be an engineer and quit after a year because I was so bored and found myself like writing poetry at night to like satisfy this kind of creative itch that I had. Um, and so writing, you know, after, um, after engineering, I went to, I studied politics uh, because it seemed like too much of a leap to go from engineering into like, you know, literature or something like that. 
But basically, by the end of college, I'd kind of figured out that I really liked uh, writing, and I, I like I, I prefer would have preferred to have studied, you know, literature um, in school. But that's kind of where I found all my focus by the by the end of my tenure at, at university. Um, I did a study abroad um, semester in New Zealand, and I was in Dunedin in the South Island. And um, not to uh, throw shade at the university there, but the coursework was, I found, quite easy compared to what I was used to. And I had an immense amount of free time, um, which was wonderful um, because I wasn't so busy with school, but I could spend, you know, five days of the week traveling around and going climbing and doing, you know, alpine routes in the South Alps and um, bouldering and, you know, just camping on beaches and just, I had an amazing time down there. And, um, while I was down in New Zealand, I, uh, heard this story on the local news about this, um, climber named Mark Ingalls who had climbed, um, Mount Cook 20 years after losing his legs on that mountain. Um, so 20 years prior, he had, you know, gotten stuck in a storm, like right near the summit and was in a snow cave and, you know, melting water on his stomach to stay alive and for about seven days and eventually was rescued and had to amputate his legs from frostbite just below the knees. And, um, you know, so 20 years later, he, he returned to Mount Cook and and ended up climbing it. And um, I don't know, I felt there was something opportunistic that, you know, some opportunistic streak I, I felt where I was like, hmm, I should write a story about this. And I don't know where that idea came from, but um, it popped into my head and I couldn't shake it. And, uh, you know, I had taken like maybe one journalism class at that point, but um, I, I kind of just, like I went out to a store and bought a um, a tape recorder, like with like a literal tape recorder with like a tape in it, because that's what they had at the time. And uh, I got in touch with Mark Ingalls and drove up to meet him on on his uh, vineyard where he was living in the north part of the South Island. And, you know, it took, two, took you know, I took two days to drive up there and, um, you know, like slept in some farmer's field on the way up to, to visit Mark. And, you know, I kind of was mentally stealing myself for this big interview I was, I was about to do for the first time in my life. And after two days of driving and camping and getting up to see Mark, I um, sat on his couch and, pressed record on my new tape recorder. And about 45 minutes later, the interview was done. And I'd asked like, you know, just the most softball questions you could imagine. And, um, you know, shook hands with Mark and then, and then went home and now was tasked with the, the, uh, the idea of trying to turn this interview into a, a story. And, um, of course I had dreams of it being published in, you know, one of the big climbing magazines in the United States. Um, and I literally spent like six months, I think, working on this, on this article. Um, you know, I'd go to the coffee shop every morning and, (laughs) and rewrite the first paragraph like a hundred times. And, um, I've, I basically made every single mistake I think you can make as a writer and, um, at some point, you know, felt like I had finished a piece and sent it off to the magazines and it was rejected by every single one of them and, no, and it was never published and never saw the light of day. Um, 
but it was an amazing experience because, like I said, I learned, I, I made every mistake, and I, I, I think I learned quite a bit from that kind of do-it-yourself mode of just going out into the world and trying to report on what you see. And, um, and yeah, anyway, that, um, that was my introduction to climbing writing. Um, but professionally, I, I think the opportunity came when I, I, um, you know, long story short, I got to do an internship at Rock and Ice Magazine and that turned into becoming an editor, um, of the magazine, which I did for about nine years. And, after that, I've been freelancing uh, for about the last um, 11 years at this point. When was the last time you read the article, the first one? You know, I don't even have it. I don't even know where it is. It, my, um, my laptop was stolen um, when I was a senior in college, and so I lost everything I'd written up until that point. Um, so, yeah, so I don't even know what the article looks like. or I would love to see it, but um, if, the, if the thief out there who took my laptop uh, <laughs> could send it to me, that would be wonderful. Yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> so, um, you know, obviously, you're a writer, you're a journalist, you're a climber. How much of your identity is wrapped up in that? Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say... If, if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I'd say it was 100%. But, um, you know, my life has changed immensely in the last decade. Um, you know, I've gotten married. I have two kids now. Um, I've been climbing less for various reasons. And so, and, uh, you know, the journalism world is just in the gutter too. So a lot of the things that I think I closely identified with are no longer considered to be like the core part of my identity. I think everyone maybe in their midlife goes through identity deaths of, of one kind or another. And, um, and so, yeah, I'd say that some of that has died off as being the most salient part of my existence and, um, which is great. I mean, it just allows, you know, opportunity to, to be other things and have the space to be other things. So I'd still call, I mean, I still identified myself as that in this introduction, but, um, you know, it's not quite as entwined with my, you know, my so-called soul as it, as it might have been a decade ago. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's probably obvious where I'm going with this, but I'm fascinated by this idea of identity and, and who we think we are and therefore who we are in a way. Um, and one thing I found really interesting about the stuff I've read about you and your journey to Palestine and the film, um, was this whole idea of, you know, an American who is essentially, I think I read that you were embarrassed historically of being Palestinian. Where did that come from? And what was your relationship with your heritage like when you were younger? Hmm. Well, like I said, I grew up in New York and um, in, I was born in Brooklyn and uh, lived in a couple different places in Westchester County, just north of the city growing up and um, I was kind of steeped in a very Jewish community as a kid. Um, I think I went to probably 20 bar and bat mitzvahs as a, as a child and a lot of my close friends were Jewish. Um, and I recall very early on feeling or just noticing when people would ask what my last name was and meant and um, just, you know, describing my background and identity as I was told by my father and grandfather 
seeing uh, the faces of my friend's parents kind of contort into a grimace. And, um, and so that was, that was a, you know, that was obvious as a, as a child. And um, yeah, it was something that I was embarrassed. I, at some point I went through a phase where I would just tell my, tell people that my last name was a French name um, for a while, <laughs> which uh, is, you know, in hindsight, much more embarrassing. Um <laughs> And yeah, so I, yeah, it was, you know, something that I kind of had this uneasy, uncomfortable experience with. I didn't know any other Palestinians growing up. I didn't know really any Arabs um, growing up. And um, my one connection was my grandfather who who lived with us um, when I was a kid. He lived in our house with us for the first 10 years of my life um, b- before he died. Um and uh, he was Palestinian. He was he was born in Jerusalem. He was he was a very eccentric person, very uh, talented architect. Actually, became very very prominent architect. And um, I was inspired by him and his brother's story of coming to the United States, leaving um, leaving Palestine, going becoming educated. They, I mean, they were very modernist. Uh, him and his brothers were all very modernist people who wanted like progress and like to build the new world and to leave the old world behind. And, um, and so a lot of his, his attitude about Palestine and about some of these questions were rooted in, um, in modernity in in the kind of the American dream of, you know, being able to, you know, get rid yourself of these, uh, of these kind of um, binds, Id- identity binds that you feel and and create something new. And so I was kind of steeped in that part of the story. But um, but it was something that I've always you know kind of wanted to explore more. And and I've I've since felt like kind of embarrassed about you know being embarrassed about calling myself Palestinian as an adult. And um, yeah, so I think part of the the impetus for this trip to Palestine was really to go see this house that I'd always heard about and um, understood to be a source of grievance for my family and, but didn't really understand why, because I looked around and saw my grandfather and all his brothers who'd become immensely successful um, architects and doctors and artists and musicians and, um, you know, just really talented people who were succeeding and thriving here in the United States. And, um, you know, why did this house matter? Why was this important? Why was this, this source of loss? And so the trip to Palestine really kind of started, um, with that as the, as the main goal. And it wasn't meant to be a film at first. Um, I was simply going to see this house and, you know, get to do a little bit of climbing and meet some, some local climbers and, um, I mean, there's a, there's a whole other story about how the, the film became a film, but I was really reticent to agree to it because I didn't want it to kind of shade my and color my experience. I wanted this very kind of, uh, I wanted to keep things as pure as possible. And I understood Israel was this very important place for a lot of people who were very close to me and important people in my life. And I'd heard only you know, kind of the Israeli side of the story, you know, growing up in a very Jewish community. 
And so I wanted to honor that as well and, and just be open-minded and be open to seeing what I saw and not having it filter filtered through, you know, trying to create a film of, of one kind or another. Um, so that was kind of my, those were my intentions going into it and, and it all changed and stuff, it, it, you know, as it went forward, but it was, yeah, I feel like I'm rambling now, but um, maybe you want to jump in with a question. <laughs> no, not at all. It's brilliant. All right. Okay. If I, if I can ask, why did your grandfather leave Palestine? Well, their house was stolen in 1948 on, on the creation of Israel. And they were renting the house at the time um, because my grandfather was in college um, in 1948 when, when Israel was created. He was in Beirut studying and um my great grandfather was renting our house out to basically he was you know with the war and everything it was he'd fallen on hard times and needed money and um he was living in cairo and so my family's story is unique in that my family wasn't um forcibly removed like you know 750,000 palestinians were in 1948 but they were they came to the country not as refugees, but as um, immigrants. And so they were quite lucky. Um, and they were also, uh, you know, a well-off family. Like if you see in the film, the the house that um, is still standing in West Jerusalem is this 26-room villa that is, this, is a massive mansion worth, you know, millions of dollars at this point. Um, and it was actually lived in um, in the 1960s by Golda Meir, who is the fourth... Uh, prime minister of Israel. So essentially like it, it's, it's as wealthy as a neighborhood as you can get in, in Jerusalem. And there were many, you know, well-off Christian, Muslim, and Jewish families that were living in this neighborhood called Talbia, including um, Edward Said's family was, was one of my grandfather's neighbors and um, other kind of prominent, you know, luminaries from uh, Palestinian society at that time. And so, yeah, so they lost their house and, um, you know, my great grandfather spent the, the next 15 years of his life trying to get it back. And, um, when he died in uh, the late fifties, um, he was said to have died of a heartache of losing, losing Palestine and losing his home. I mean, that was the, that's how the, my family, you know, describes it. Who knows what the the, the real story is, but that's kind of how the, that's the heartache of, of the loss of, of Palestine and the destruction of Palestinian society that happened in, in 1948. Um, yeah. And so what, you know, you, it sounds like from the way you describe it, that you have quite a, or had at least quite a complicated relationship with your heritage. And there are these stories there that will have come out over your childhood and your adult life. What made you ultimately decide to go there? And why, in a way, did it take so long? Mm. Well, I'd been to the Middle East before. Um, a lot of my family, um, the greater Bisharat family, is, has um, moved to Jordan. And I, I, I took a trip to Jordan with my father when I was, you know, probably 19 or 20 or something. And actually, there's a a Bisharat golf course just south of Amman uh, <laughs> that my family owns. 
it was originally um, my great grandfather's and his brother's kind of farm, like they grew wheat and stuff. And I think that's kind of how they, you know, they were farmers who, who, you know, grew crops and that was where their money came from. Um, but now it's a golf course and because it's, uh, you know, in the middle of the desert, there's no grass and you carry around a little, um, piece of AstroTurf that you hit your ball on and, and all the greens are, you know, compacted dirt that you put on, um, <laughs> but yeah, we had a, you know, we took a trip there and, and toured around Jordan and stayed at, you know, relatives houses and, um, you know, picked olives from their olive trees and stuff like that. Um, I'm sorry, what was the question again? What was the... Oh, the impetus. Yeah. So, so I'd been to, I'd been to Lebanon. I'd been, um, I'd been to Jordan, but I'd never been to Palestine. And, um, again, it was, it was really to see this house and to just try to understand, understand why this home was important to my family and what, if it should still be important to me. And, um, and so, you know, that was the question that I, I really had in mind was, trying to see see this house and and just try to understand what it was that was meaningful about it if anything um and yeah to give you the jump to the punchline I ended up realizing that because this house is so prominent because you know it was lived in by Golda Meir and other you know prominent Israeli politicians it it resonates with Palestinians in a way that is incredible. And everyone I would tell this, my story to had a story that was verbatim similar, you know, with a few details changed here and there. And, um, I met up with this, uh, local guy named, uh, Tadek Bakri, who has a project of, uh, bringing, you know, Palestinians in the diaspora to their family's original homes and taking photos of them and, you know, using archival pictures of their families um, to find where their homes are and, and then bringing, you know, the kind of diaspora, you know, grandkids and so forth to these places. And so I met up with him and he had already printed out a photo of my uh, family in front of this house. He knew exactly which house it was. Um, and we went there together and he took some pictures of me in front of the house and stuff and um, shared it on social media, you know, over the next month. And the response that I saw from so many Palestinians was just incredible because they, it was just this obvious, I mean, this is, this is the Palestinian story. It's the story of loss of home, um, loss of connection to your roots, to your place, and, um, you know, my family is fine. You know, we, we're not, it's not like we're refugees who need, you know, who've, who've lost an immense amount of wealth or something like it's, of course, you know, this, this house is worth, you know, tens of millions of dollars or whatever, but that is, that's not the important part of it. It's the, to the degree that this uh, story resonates with Palestinians. I think it's a, it's a meaningful story to me, and I hope to continue telling, um, you know, my family's story and the story of this home, because um, until it's not meaningful to Palestinians anymore, because they've been able to return to their homes and live in their country, and um, 
But until that happens, I, I find it to be a, a, an important story to tell, and it's a one that it's one that resonates with Palestinians, and I think that's the real value, and that's the real kind of um, the truth that I discovered on this trip. Yeah, I mean, there's lots to get into there, and I think we've got time to get into a lot of it. But um, you know, I, I keep saying the same line. But given this historical complex relationship with being Palestinian, how much were you trying to? I think, I guess, reconnect with your roots. And then I, I think it's even more complicated by the fact that this place you were going to see wasn't your family's anymore, if that makes sense. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of a double layer to the complicated heritage. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had a real emotional moment seeing it because um, I was just flooded with memories of my grandfather and also my dad. And I think any time a grown man thinks about their, their father, they start to cry, um, or at least part of them does. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this, the funny thing about identity is that we want, we need to have those connections in our lives. Um, and they can be meaningful and they can be super valuable, but they don't need to be everything about who you are. And there's a, there's a very fraught way in which those identity markers can turn into, you know, really toxic traits and toxic um, ways of viewing the world and causing you to identify with them so closely that you are blinded to the more common bonds of humanity that we are supposed to feel to each other day in and day out. I mean, I think of identity as like wearing your favorite team's, you know, baseball cap or, you know, whatever it is, jersey, football jersey. It's something that you put on and you feel this uh, kind of irrational connection to rooting for this side. And um, it gives you a lot of meaning and importance in, in your life in those moments when you're, you know, your team is winning and you're, you're part of, you're part of something, you're part of like a, um, a community, you're part of a culture and um, you just have an irrational love for that. And that's important to foster and honor and develop in your life, I think. But we also want to be able to take those jerseys off when it's important to do so and and um, find ways to collaborate with people who we perceive to be our, you know, enemies or, you know, on the other side of, of our points of view. Um, so navigating those... Um, Navigating those uh, identity markers, I think, is a really important um, process for everyone to to understand and to come to terms with on the, in whatever that looks like in their life. And um, yeah, and to give us context, because I think with this topic of conversation, kind of timing is everything. When were you there, and when was the film released? Um, our trip was in May of 2022, and the film came out in March of 2023. And so, you know, the obvious question I was inevitably going to ask, what has your reaction been to the invasion and everything that's happened since? Well, it's been really difficult, of course, um, to see what's happening 
in Gaza. And uh, it's made, it's actually, it's consumed my attention in an unhealthy way. And it's made it difficult to really focus on much else or really care about much else. And, you know, certainly trying to whip up a column, you know, about rock climbing feels like the most least important thing in the world. You know, when you see, when you open up your phone and just see video after video of children being pulled from rubble and amputated without uh, medication and people starving now and um, just the, just this rampage and destruction that's happening in Gaza um, yeah, I mean, I can say more about my thoughts on the political take of it, but it's just the, the bottom line is that I've, I've had a difficult time with it. And my family, um, we've had a couple of zoom calls where, you know, I've connected with my relatives and, and, uh, just commiserated about what's happening. And I think that we all, well, there's a number of things to say. I, I mean, I, I've learned like different details. Like one of the hospitals that was bombed in Gaza was uh, named after a, you know a distant relative of ours, and so there's connections that my family has to this part of the world. And um, yeah, it's it's actually it's brought my cousins and I closer in a way. Like we've that's been one maybe good thing that's come out of it is we've you know, we've been uh, communicating more regularly and, and been in touch with each other and, and just kind of just, you know, just felt so sad about what's happening. And um, it's part of, again, I, I just see this as nothing new in, a, in one sense. It's just the continued destruction and removal of Palestinians and Palestinians from Palestine that's been going on for 75 years and it's just taken on a um, much more rapid and violent uh, character in the last 90 days. And um, so in a way it's nothing new, but it is new and it's, it's, it's of course much more awful than I think any of, any of us would can really comprehend. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Has your relationship with what's happened been made any more complicated or not by your kind of dual heritage in a way, the Palestinian-American? Well... The wonderful thing about being American is that you have the freedom to con- to criticize your government and to you can be American without endorsing your country's policies and that's been um that's that's one of the great things about living in a liberal 
society like ours. Um, we are free to be American in a way that isn't doesn't um, endow us to loyalty to our government. And so, um, I mean, I am shocked by the. I'm I'm both I'm not surprised, but sh- I'm also shocked by the the way that our government endorses the you know massacre that's happening in Gaza. Um, but again, this is nothing new. I mean, like the you have to understand that if if I think that as a Palestinian, I've grown up really sensitive to the ways in which our media and our country is biased against Palestinians in a way that most people don't realize or recognize or even think about. And so none of the, some of the shocking things about the way that we've endorsed this, you know, massacre has been um, unsurprising to me because it is part of a long history of blind support for Israel and, um, a kind of anti-Palestinian bias. That is one thing that I've, I think has been really, uh, I've just really been sensitive to the lack of voice for Palestinians in, in lieu, you know, in light of this, uh, the, the last 90 days, there really is like a, um, a vacuum of leadership and a, a vacuum of voices speaking um, toward the plurality of opinions and points of view that are part of Palestinian society. And so when that vacuum um, happens, there's it's going to be filled with, uh, you know, people f- putting words in people's mouths. And so that's kind of what I've seen happen a lot in the last 90 days is, you know, kind of gross characterizations about Islamic fanaticism and jihadism that I think really doesn't just kind of fundamentally misunderstands the Palestinian predicament. And it's kind of a, a way of, um, taking, you know, events from, you know, September 11th, you know, 2001, or some of the, uh, the spasms of real jihadist streaks that we've seen from coming out of the Arab world and putting it into the Palestinians' mouth, and I don't, I don't see the Palestinian plight as being a, a, a about um, Islamic fanaticism. It's, it's more about uh, equality of rights and um, a, an ability to live free on their lands. That is really the the political plight of the Palestinians. And so, and there is no voice speaking for them. Um, Hamas is not doing that. The Palestinian Authority is essentially a puppet government for, for Israel and the United States. And Palestinian society has just been fragmented and fractured by design um, over the last 75 years. And so there is no real political leadership that can speak to what they're, core political demands are. And, um, in that vacuum, we have these, uh, childish and gross mischaracterizations that are used to continue to perpetuate, um, an oppress the oppression of Palestinians, the, the blockade on Gaza, and now the, the massacre of, of Gaza and the continued ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from Palestine. And, 
I know that, you know, in the grand scheme of things on a global scale, you don't have a big voice in that sense, but you do have a voice and you do have a talent and a proven career history. To what extent have you felt like you have a responsibility or a duty to be a voice for Palestine? Well, I actually wrote a piece um, kind of about identity and um, about Palestine and um, and sent it out to a bunch of publications and it was either ignored or rejected by all of them. Um, so, I mean, not to say that what I wrote was brilliant or should have been published. Maybe it was just garbage and that, that's fine too. But um, I have, I mean, I, I guess just to answer your question, I have felt that urge and that has been, you know, as, as rock climbing, it's receded from the most important thing in the world um, especially in the last 90 days, it's my attention's been thinking more and more about about some of these big questions. And yeah, I I will say that um, I mean, this last year has been kind of crazy because the, the when this our film came out in March, and I saw this response to our film that I was not expecting, which was so many people really loving it and applauding it. And I'd never seen such open displays of support for Palestinians in my life before in, in American society and or, or around the world. I mean, I've gotten hundreds of messages from people all over the world who have seen our film and who've been touched by it. And we the film is open doors for the, some of the Palestinian climbers in the film. Like we, we were, um, we secured them visas to come visit, uh, visit us here in the U S which would never have happened otherwise. I mean, in fact, their visas were rejected at first and we had to essentially got connections in our state department and had them reapply. Um, and they were able to get visas. And this is, I mean, just to get a visa is like a huge deal. And, um, and so they, they traveled here to the U S they spent a month, um, at my house. And I mean, I live in Western Colorado and, you know, we can drive four hours just on open roads into this like vast wilderness and go out to the desert and climb cracks in Indian Creek and climb towers and in the desert and, um, you can't drive, you know, 10 minutes without hitting a checkpoint in, in the West bank and being stopped and harassed and, and all of that. And so it was just this amazing, amazing moment of sharing the freedom that I enjoy here in the U S with these wonderful people from Palestine that I I'm now consider such good friends and, and so, yeah, it was all just, it felt like the, the first half of 2023 was just this really wonderful kind of dreamlike experience of seeing people um, being attuned to the Palestinian plight and uh, open and receptive to, to it and, and just seeing Palestinians as, as real human beings and not as these kind of, you know, gross mischaracterizations that you see on CNN and other news channels and so forth. Um, and then of course, you know, this, this horrific tragedy and violent 
um, horrible, violent thing happened on October 7th. And, um, and now we've had just 90 days of massacre of Palestinians and it's just been a terrible, terrible way to end the year. And I I think that our film probably, you know, probably couldn't have come out after something like this happened. Um, I don't know if that would have been possible. And so, yeah, it's been just like a very up and down year, I guess. Yeah, of course. Um, But I think it's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong or if you disagree with this, but I think, you know, Sender, who I assume spoke to you about it, they decided to release the film for free, eventually or put it online, make it fully available for anyone to watch. I dare say that it's, you know, A, been well received, but B, has done some good in some ways. I mean, you're very welcome to disagree with this if you do, but it's quite heartbreaking to watch it now, to kind of see Mm -hmm. the joy of it and to see a place that I'd never researched or studied or understood at all, really, outside of reading something small. Um, And just think, well, that's probably not there anymore. That's probably not there anymore. Where are all these people? Are they okay? Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the messaging in the film is completely different watching it right now. Yeah, I a couple weeks ago, um, I attended an online screening of our film with the Palestine Museum in the U.S. here, and um, it was like a Zoom call, and we sh- they showed the film, and then we did a Q and A afterward. And um, I actually hadn't seen the f- I'd seen it a hundred times, of course, but I hadn't seen it since October seventh, and I was just in tears the whole time. I was really surprised at I, I, I was not prepared to just be kind of emotionally rocked in that way and yeah it certainly took on a very different character in light of what's been happening and yeah i mean like all of the climbers in that film are are all in the west bank which is different than gaza and so they're they're not in um in the shit as the way the Gazans are right now, but there's been a lockdown. They can't really go many places. There's been increased security. They're all much more fearful of just being randomly shot by uh, if they have to go through a checkpoint or something like that. And of course they're angry. They're angry at watching, you know, 20,000 of their brothers and sisters just slaughtered to death for no reason. Um, and, uh, and and no one seems to be doing anything about it. So um, it's been terrible. I mean, like, yeah, it's been it's been awful to awful time. We were actually planning to go on a trip there this December. Um, I, uh, you know, one of the things that we've been doing is working on uh, putting, uh, doing some solar projects for some of the climbers in that film. Uh, Tafiq, who, who's the Bedouin who lives in kind of this tin, uh, shed, um, literally, you know, I wanted to, uh, increase their access to solar and heat and electricity and maybe, you know, rig up, uh, an electric stove or something so they don't have to cook on a, f- open fire pit and inside a hut, which is so bad for, you know, your health. And, um, Alex Honnold, uh, donated, you know, lots of his money, um, personal money because it was, I mean, he has the Honnold foundation, which does these solar projects, but, um, 
they only do like big community installations. And so kind of smaller projects like this, Alex was just, he's just an, you know, an amazing dude and just, yeah, gave some of his money to help fund a solar project there. And as well as um, one that would um, fund there in the film, there's like some climbers on this aquaponics farm, which, you know, they're, they grow vegetables basically. And just, access to Palestinian grown vegetables that aren't, that don't come from Israel are very rare. And, um, because access to farmlands has been restricted through settlements and other, uh, you know, land theft things that happen there, you know, they've, they've turned to aquaponics, which uses less water, you know, water is a big issue and access to water is a big issue uh, for Palestinians. They've been starved of water and cut off on their supply of water. And so anyway, um, yeah, so that, that was also part of that. So we were going to go and, and climb with, with Honold and some other folks from the North Face. And, um, but of course that, that trip got canceled and, um, so yeah, it's just been yeah, it's been a tough, <laughs> tough few months for that too. Yeah, sure. And how? I mean, I don't know. Maybe we should just—I'll just say it how I'm feeling it. I think it's this part of the world. You know, it's something that when you look like me and are from where I'm from, it's quite an intimidating thing to talk about because you don't want to be accused of being anti this or anti that. Um. But I think this particular conflict invasion is made a lot more complicated by the two sides, as it were. And I think, you know, really interesting that you say you grew up in a part of New York where you were surrounded by Jewish friends and had a lot of Jewish friends. You know, do you still, and have you been having any conversations with people about what's going on in that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, a lot of my Jewish friends have reached out to me actually and to just check in and just say that they, you know, they hate seeing what's happening. And, um, you know, like even I have, I have friends who have purposefully not seen the film actually, because they do have, you know, an allegiance to Israel and they want to kind of preserve the integrity of our friendship. And, um, they're maybe afraid that, seeing seeing the film might you know kind of i don't know give make them have kind of a negative emotion or feeling toward me and so i appreciate that um i appreciate the you know reaching out and and so forth and i think the thing that was most interesting to me though is that the from a distance there the Israel-Palestine conflict is kind of presented as this enigma that it's hard, it's kind of difficult to parse like what is going on there. And there are these two sides that have these kind of competing claims to truth and value and so forth. And what was interesting to me is that after being there and seeing what is going on, it really is not that complicated. And, um, I've compared it to one of those optical illusions that you stare at and you you kind of see the face emerge and you're not sure what you're looking at first, but then you see, you know, the face. And then once you see the face, you can't unsee it. And that's all you see. And my trip there has uh, 
allowed me to see the face, as it were. And what I see is there is one state in Israel and Palestine. There's one country there. And there is a an apartheid taking place where people are oppressed and being pushed off of their land slowly and incrementally. And... Um, and I mean, that's the bottom line. Like there, I don't, I don't think that you can really see it any other way actually. Um, and, but it is a very different, you know, Israel has done, has gone to great lengths to create this, uh, illusion for the people of Israel to, um, kind of live in and experience where they don't, they're not, um, they don't have to see the oppression. They don't have to think about it. They don't, it's on the other side of the wall and it's like literally behind the curtain. Um, and Israelis think of themselves as this kind of democratic liberal society. And, uh, you know, they're kind of like a small democracy like New Zealand or Denmark or something like that. That's kind of, That's how they think of themselves. But what is actually happening is this very brutal slow incremental dispossession of Palestinians and oppression of Palestinians and continued um, continued displacement and kind of ethnic cleansing. And it is, it's been the policy since the beginning um, to varying degrees. And, you know, I, I just, regardless of the historical connections and quip, things that you want to quibble about, to me, I'm a I'm an old school democratic liberal. I think of I think that identity should not matter for in terms of what um, your political rights. I reject the notion of a state with um, that's premised around ethnicity or religion. Um, to me, there is no problem that Zionism purports to solve that liberalism doesn't solve five hundred times better. Um, all of the, you know, Jew, I understand, of course, um, that Jews have been oppressed um, over the course of their history, and that is, and not just oppressed, but genocided, and all, of course, you know, the Holocaust and all of that stuff. But um, to me, the the freedom and the security and safety of Jews is is dependent on liberal principles, which. Uh, means that we live in democratic countries where everyone has equal rights, regardless of who you are, what you believe, what your skin color is, what language you speak. Um, and that is the world that I want to live in. And I, all of the other things just kind of feel like sticking points, in, you know, that are hard to get past. But I, I just see that as the North Star toward which we need to move. And, um, I, my vision for what needs to happen there is a one-state solution where there are Jews, Muslims, and Christians living side by side in a country called Israel or Palestine or whatever you want to call it. I know it doesn't even matter, you know, what the word is, um, but they live together, they vote democratically, and they have to learn to collaborate Um I think a lot of people would hear that and scoff and think that's a naive vision, but I just don't see, I don't see any other choice. I mean, the only other choice is the content is you're going to create, um, 
you know, a, a singular Jewish society in Israel where there are no Palestinians, there are no Arabs, there are no um, Muslims, and there are no Christians left. And how are you going to do that? I mean, it's a monstrous Pyrrhic victory that you would have to, uh, uh, the likes of which we're seeing in, in Gaza, you know, over the last 90 days, where it requires bombing, pushing people out, starving them, killing them, forcing them to leave. Um, I mean, Netanyahu is now talking about, I forget which African country he's in, he's talking with, but there's they're trying to ship Gazans to Africa, basically, to get rid of them. And... Um, I mean, and maybe that's going to happen. You know, maybe maybe the world will just allow this to happen. And in 20 years, Gaza will have, uh, you know, all-inclusive resorts on the beach for Israelis and, you know, American Jews to come do their birthright trips to um, be part of Israel and enjoy the, you know, the fruits of Israeli society. And those uh, resorts will be built on the graves of, of um, Gazan children. Um, and... You know, there'll there'll be little plaques on uh, on the you know to commemorate the war and all the lives lost. That uh, progressive Israelis will help them, uh, you know, feel okay about about the, their history, and it'll all be forgotten. And Palestinians will just have nothing left but the memory of of what was once Palestine. Um, I mean, I'm cynical enough to think that that is the direction that all of this is heading, um, but I'm hopeful that. People hear Palestinian voices, perhaps like mine, advocating for equality, for basic liberal principles, for a society built on um, built on your dignity as a human being over your uh, immutable characteristics, over your uh, ethnic ties, your these kind of. Um, superficial identity markers that we've been talking about, these jerseys that we wear that feel so important to us. And and we can put that into the parts of our society that are where they are important, like family get-togethers and, you know, expressions of expressions of cultural joy and uh, you know, ho- you know, unique holidays and stuff like that. And and otherwise collaborate um together as human beings trying to build a society where we're equal as people. Yeah. I mean, we're drifting into, you know, really serious territory and political territory now. And, you know, that was going to be my kind of not closing, but close to closing question around what do you think is going to happen? But I, you've explained that so well and it's harrowing and kind of heartbreaking to hear but do you genuinely think that the international community will let that happen? I mean, it's been happening for 75 years. And, um, and so it just happens to be happening at a quicker pace right now because Hamas gave Israel a, a useful pretext upon which to expedite um, what their plans have been all along. Um, and so I don't know, again, I think that this really comes down to a, a vacuum of voice and leadership in, in Palestinian society. And that is one serious critique I have of Palestinians is that they need 
their Nelson Mandela figure. They need their they need their person who who can um, advocate for these um, these principles openly and effectively, and do so without the more extremist religious tinged rhetoric that Hamas and um, you know has put forth which I reject. And I think a lot of Palestinians do as well. And, um, and so I don't know, I mean, until that needs to happen, but it's, it it is also, you know, it's hard to be critical of Palestinians because they've every, every expression of political movement has been, you know, squashed by Israel over the years from peaceful demonstrations. I mean, in, in 2019, their Gaza protested peacefully along the border fence and 200 people were executed by sniper and tens, you know, thousands more were maimed by, by sniper. And it's un- insufferable, the conditions that they're forced to live under. And so what is, what is the solution? Um, how do, how do people advocate for, for Palestinians? And I don't know, I, I hope that, I hope that, you know, perhaps with a generational change, um, I mean, there are very encouraging stories of young, um, young Jews in America. There's this wonderful film that came out this year called Israelism that was created by, um, some American Jews. I highly recommend, uh, watching that, um, that just kind of questions the, the propaganda and kind of the premise of, is, of Israel as this required for the security of the Jewish people. And um, they question that in a really effective way and to look at what that, um, where that has led. And yeah, I mean, I have a very good Israeli friend who, who stayed with us this summer who, um, you know, he's married to a Palestinian woman and he's, he's a very, yeah, he's, you know, there's, there's people like that of, of our generation who, you were just questioning, you know, the premise of these 19th century modes of what a state should be and what it should look like. And if it should be premised on, on identity as the most fundamental uh, tenet of inclusion in society. And um, so I think the, the younger generation has, has a lot to give us hope, but um, I don't know. I, I feel very despondent about the prospects for any change anytime soon. Yeah. And then my last question, which is, is a terrible question, but it's one I do want to ask is, um, uh, I'm going to say it and then give you some caveats, but like, what can we do? You know, I'm, is it, is it listen? Is it read? Is it learn? What can we do to help in some way? I mean, I think that, you know, advocating for, for Palestinian rights among government officials is, is a good first step. Um, I mean, that is the one benefit of living in a democracy is that we have representatives who are supposed to listen to us. Um, of course they don't because there's lots of, um, incentives to ignore the Palestinian plight. And, um, I mean, yeah, being open to new, you know, new narratives, new sources of information, reading books like Rashid Khalidi's The Hundred Years' War in Palestine is a 
wonderful primer for people to to read and start wrapping their heads around. Um, Ilan Pape is a Israeli historian who's has um, an amazing history of of kind of the Israeli occupation and destruction of Palestinian society. Miko um, Pellet is a is another Israeli who has been very critical of Israel. His um, book, The General's Son, talks about his his um, kind of awakening to the the horrors of Zionism. is is I think a really essential book to read. And um, I mean, what can you do? I mean, I I don't know. I really don't know what what there is to do. Um, my uh, there. The inner um, the Institute for Middle Eastern Understanding is an organization that my one of my relatives actually helped found, um, and it's a they are doing great work in terms of just trying to fill that vacuum of of Palestinian voice voices in in society and culture and, and politics, and um, so they're an organization that you can look into as well. Okay, Ace. Um... I think because I could talk to you about this for hours, as kind of difficult as it is, I think unless you have anything else you'd like to add, we'll leave it there. Well, I just want to maybe end on a positive note, and I hope if anyone is um, listening to this and they haven't seen our film Resistance Climbing, they can check that out at, at realrocktour.com. And um, I'm really proud of one thing about our film is that it, humanizes people who are reliably dehumanized in media. And it shows that these people are diverse in how they look, in their socioeconomic status, in their views, religious views, um, political views. But they are people who love adventure. They love climbing. They love the outdoors. And they are our brothers and sisters in that sense. Um, if you are someone who I assume also cherishes those things. Um, and I hope that seeing something, seeing that display um, kind of, if anything, just helps humanize people who really need to be humanized at this moment so that they're not just, you know, uh, fatality numbers are listed on the, on the AP. Yeah, that is a positive way to end a, a difficult but true and important conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. 